Blog Talk Radio. On March 11, 2020, Dual Classic and Eclipse Award winner War Emblem passed away. Sold on February 20, 1999, he was the son of Our Emblem out of Sweetest Lady by Lord at War. Through his sire, his top pedigree included the names of legendary sires Mr. Prospector, Native Dancer, Nashua, Damascus, and Man of War. Best known for a temperament that didn't care much for people or horses, War Emblem's intelligence left a lasting impression on those who worked with him. In 2002, War Emblem won the Illinois Derby, earning himself a place in the 128th running of the Kentucky Derby. Transferred from trainer Frank Springer to Bob Baffert's barn, he earned the nickname Hannibal Lecter due to his tendency to bite. While training the Kentucky Derby and Preakness Stakes winner for his run at Immortality, Baffert remarked, he's a very smart horse, and he tells you when to back off. After winning the Haskell Invitational in the summer of 2002, War Emblem was retired with seven wins out of 13 starts and over $3 million in earnings. He was purchased by the Yoshida family to stand at Shaddai Stallion Forum in Japan and proved to be a difficult but talented stallion whose progeny have made their mark on Japanese racing. Pensioned from stud duty in 2015, he was repatriated to the United States to take up residence at Old Friends Farm. For the first time in his life, he was allowed by humans to do what he wanted to do on his own terms and at his own pace. He could greet visitors, race caretakers and sponsors along the pasture fence, or stand at the back of the pasture, pasture and watch the world go by. I believe that this freedom mellowed war emblem, allowing him to trust his caretakers and the fans who visited him at Old Friends. War Emblem preferred his pasture to a stall and was allowed to live outside, where he was found on the morning of March 11th. His death is believed to be the result of a pasture accident. War Emblem was 21 years old. He's been eulogized by many, including photographers Laura Battles and Courtney Snow, columnist Maria Bauer-Herzog and Steve Haskins, and many fans on social media. Michael Bluen, founder of Old Friends and War Emblem's frequent opponent in pasture races, or races along the pasture fence, said, I proudly count among a very meager number of accomplishments the day he allowed me to put his halter on without biting me. He trusted me. What more could I ask for? The farm will recover from his loss over time, but it'll never be the same. War Emblem will be missed by those who had the privilege to work with him during his racing career, his career at Stud, his caretakers at Old Friends, and a generation of fans. Lo there do I see my father. Lo there do I see my mother and my sisters and my brothers. Lo there do I see the line of my kindred back to the beginning. 
Lo, they do call to me. They bid me take my place among them in the fields of Elysium, where the children of Pegasus may live forever. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is now, for all intents and purposes, closed as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak in Louisiana. In addition to school closures throughout the state, New Orleans police have closed Bourbon Street. We're also one of four cities chosen by the federal government to implement drive-through testing of symptomatic patients and those at risk. I'm joined by Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which has reported its first uh, confirmed cases of coronavirus over the past couple of days. UAMS is offering drive-through triage for those who believe they have symptoms and online screening at uamshealth.com slash healthnow. Thank you for joining us for Episode 3 of Clear and Convincing, State of Utah versus Theodore Robert Bundy. Bundy is believed to be one of the most prolific serial killers in the history of American crime. In addition to the murders he admitted to committing in 1989 prior to his execution, he's suspected in murders dating back to the 1960s. Some believe he committed his first murder at the age of 14. Tonight in Part 1... We'll talk about Ted's reign of terror in the Northwest, his arrest in Utah for aggravated kidnapping and attempted assault, and his eventual arrest, trial, and conviction in that case. Then we'll talk about his attempted escapes and final su- successful escape while awaiting trial on murder charges in Colorado. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 and good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Uh, definitely a somber day, hopefully, you know. Uh, it's really been like, this week has been just weird. So, like, every day, it's been almost like we've been living in a movie, kind of, you know, where, like, mm-hmm. you watch every day the president's on the TV updating us and everything. Like, it's it's really a freaking end of the world Armageddon movie that we're watching here, you know, it's just a matter of how the story ends. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's crazy. Um and to see Bourbon Street I think it was Sunday 
evening, Sunday night, I mean, NOPD closed it down, and it stayed closed. I mean, In fact, I, I posted, to... I shared on my page mm-hmm. uh, a little while ago. I shared it on my phone. <laughs> it's closed. And that's never crazy. happened since Katrina. That's crazy to me in and of itself, but also, I mean, Lisa, you got to think – on not necessarily a bigger scale, but, you know, a more renowned scale. Did you see Times Square this morning? No. That place is a ghost town. That's insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know everybody's, nobody's got uh, audiences, and it's just, it's like a different world. It's almost like an alternate universe. Absolutely. And um, I just hope that they're able to find a vaccine, a cure, and, you know, so that we can get back to – I don't want this to be the new normal. Yeah, absolutely not. Like, I, I don't want – I was looking for – I want. we usually on Tuesday nights, my sister and I order takeout. Because then I don't have to do dishes. Right. And tonight I could not find anything on Grubhub that was open. Oh, wow. Now, they may have been open for me to go pick stuff up. I don't know. But I'm not getting in the car driving around looking for some places open. If Grubhub says they're not open... I'm going to just presume they're not open. <laughs> right. So, um, but tomorrow night, I, you know, I think we'll, I'll try and get a better handle on that. But it was just really, it was really odd. Absolutely it is. I mean, and you're right. I, I'm hoping this isn't the new normal, but I mean, I've heard anywhere estimates from two weeks to, you know, the middle of July. Mhm. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing that. I've heard that too. And of course, we know everybody's heard the Kentucky Derby will not be run the first Saturday in May, which right. I think is the first time in over 150 years. I mean, add that to the growing list of sporting events. You're talking about for the first mm-hmm. time, I believe, in the history of the NCAA, the tournament has been canceled and. You know, obviously sports isn't that big a deal, but I do feel for the student athletes that are affected by this. I mean, this was some of these kids' senior seasons. You know, they'll never get to play Mm -hmm. again. Right, right. Yeah, and and, um, some of the guys at the office were talking about, you know, some of these, you know, schools that aren't necessarily, um, you know, Duke or – or the powerhouse schools in basketball, but they've had good seasons. Right. And now their, you know, their chance for the national spotlight, and it's the national spotlight that brings support into the school for the program, and now their their chance is gone. Yeah. And And I mean, it's... Think about this. Like, last year, I think it was, was when uh, UMBC... Uh, that small Boston school 
went crazy mm-hmm. in the tournament, like out of nowhere. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that would have never happened had they not, nobody would have known who they were had they not been in the NCAA tournament. And now, Correct. unfortunately, you know, there could be another school that was on the brink of doing something special. And unfortunately, they won't get that opportunity. Correct. So, but horse racing has uh, has gone on. They don't have any fans in the stands or anybody placing bets at the racetracks, but they have continued to run races. Now, question. And, are horses possibly susceptible to this coronavirus? From what I understand from um, America's Day at the Races on Fox Sports 2. The coronavirus is species-specific. So the effect for humans is different than the effect for equines or felines or canines. As I understand it from some sources, canines aren't even – there isn't a coronavirus for canines. Um, for horses, from what I understand, the equine version is more gastrointestinal, right? Which can be dangerous because it can result in colic, which is where the the matter does not continue moving through the system. Because remember, when we talked to Dr. Langlois, horses' systems go one way only. So if it's not moving out the back end. It just it just continues building up. Right, right. I I said that as delicate as delicately as I could. Delicately possible. <laughs> yes. So, um, and I don't know. I I haven't heard anything about a feline um, version, but I I think that in transmission. A human can't transmit a human coronavirus to a horse. Right. And a horse can't transmit the equine virus to humans. So it doesn't cross species. I think the only animal that could transmit coronavirus to a human would be a primate. Because the the version in primates would be probably so close, or if not identical, to the version in, in Homo sapien. Right. So, but yeah, they, they could be affected, but humans can't pass it to them. Even if they're, even if, you know, their groom has Corona, you know, has coronavirus and doesn't realize it. And I think that was the dangerous part about coronavirus is people could be exposed to it and become carriers without ever having symptoms. Right. And that's why the the social isolation has been put into effect because most viruses, if you're exposed, you get some symptoms to know that you were exposed so that you can limit your contact. But in mm-hmm. this one, you can be exposed and have it and not even know it. Right, and that's you know that's kind of crazy, you know. And I I did see 
where the CDC put out a little chart saying, you know, one of the easiest ways you can tell, even though there's no symptoms, if your lungs are being compromised is just hold your breath and count to 10. And if you need to call for something, you know, you could possibly be getting some issues developing in your lungs. So, I mean, okay. So, I mean, that's something, uh, that's something to, uh, keep an eye on, but, you know, right. for the majority and of the what, time, it's like everybody's saying, wash your damn hands. Right, exactly. And one of the things that, that is true with flu, coronavirus, and, um, you know, every strain of flu that we've seen over the last decade or so, the danger to people with compromised immune systems is that they develop these secondary bacterial infections, either because they have to be hospitalized, because their symptoms are so severe with a viral infection, or simply because their immune system is so compromised, bacteria are able to take hold and, and go to town. And that's what, what generally, that's why flu becomes fatal is because the virus on top of a bacterial infection and viral antivirals don't work with bacteria and bacteria, sometimes you have to get specific as to what kind of antibiotics you, you know, you use and it's, it's just crazy. It's a crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I've also heard, like, um, of course, the funny memes, like, if you drank Boone's Farm, you're immune to yeah, everything. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard everything. <laughs> if, you, if you use those pull-down towels in the public restrooms, you're immune. Oh, I've seen that if you stayed in the old school dorms, and anybody that's been to Air Force basic training knows what I'm talking about. I saw the if you stayed in the old school dorms, you're uh, you're uh, immune, all sorts of stuff. If you yeah, so. a restaurant, you're immune. If you've used the restroom in this place, you're immune. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, and I just think, um, you know, one of the things. We have a tendency to panic as yeah. Americans. I don't understand exactly why, but we do. And yeah. so people are hoarding toilet paper. Yeah. Like I, I said, I, I don't that. I don't know if they think they're gonna be stuck in their house I and not so. be able to go out to the grocery store for months. I mean, Lisa, it's not even just toilet paper. My buddy (laughs) went and got him a PlayStation because he's waiting. He's going to be at home for the next two weeks waiting for, uh, waiting to start his next job. And he said he Uh went to Walmart after he got it. And he said that place is like got zero video games. So people are freaking hoarding video games for crying out loud. Yeah. Well, that at least makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. You know, now the other funny thing that I saw at the Walmart on Sunday was the beer aisle was still fully stocked. I can confirm. And the wine. And the liquor. I can confirm. I saw a woman 
buying like 10 bottles of wine last night. <laughs> and I'm like, you're going to be home with your children, for those of you who have children, until the middle of April at least. Right. And y'all, y'all aren't stocking up on beer and wine and and vodka and rum and every other type of liquor because by the end of day three, you're gonna need it. Right. Well, I mean, hell, <laughs> starting. I, I I mean, this is all a fluid situation with the company I work for, but I believe starting like Monday, I'm gonna be a work from home employee, and before too long, my girlfriend oh. will be as well. Just because, okay. you know, we have so many people on the floor and what's going on. So, you know, they're telling us basically you're going to be working from home for the foreseeable future. But this is their this is their basic way of saying if we have to shut down, we're going to keep you guys, you know, we're going to keep you guys getting a paycheck, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I couldn't really work from home because – with a law office, the file is everything. Right. So in order to work at home, I would have to bring home files and files and files and files. Yeah. Your home would become files. Correct. And um, with this show, that's already happening. My sister said something to me the other day about this office. <laughs> so oh, by the way. I need to... I need to get some storage containers, some little bins, and start putting some paperwork away. By the way, I meant to uh, tell you this earlier when we were off the air, but I've got another case I want to look at, me and you. Remember how we did one? Okay. Yeah. It's kind of similar to that. So this gentleman, I watched it. uh, What's the show on Netflix that we always talk about? uh, The Killer Show. Um. Where they I'm a killer. Murderer. Yeah. Uh, it's another one from the second season, and I believe the guy was in Illinois, and um, basically he ended up being found mentally retarded, um, and he ended up getting taken off death row. So I want to kind of do a compare and contrast of this situation, why he got clemency, and you know, with Wanda Jean's situation, basically. Okay. Um, here, uh, sometime soon. I'll yeah, send, send me the name, and I'll watch the thing. But I can tell you um, what year you know what year was his case. Uh, he was an older gentleman. I want to say I think he said it was in like the seventies or eighties. No, no. What year get... was his commutation? And are you sure he wasn't commuted in 2000 when Governor Ryan commuted all the death sentences? No, no, it wasn't Governor Ryan. It was, I want to say, 2011 when he got commuted. Well, there was no – see, that's the thing. There's no, there's no death row in Illinois in 2011. Hold on. Give me a second. I'm about to go. Okay. Okay. What's the name of the show? I am, if I am a killer. Yeah. And I mean, the, one of the things as I as I've said many many times, it's out. You're you're trying to compare apples to oranges. Right. What happened in in Oklahoma with Wanda Jean Allen 
is not necessarily a determinate, you know, determinative of what should happen in Illinois to this other guy. Um, if I mean, I think Wanda Jean Allen's execution was in 2001, correct? Or 2002? Uh, it was. Or maybe even 2000? 2000? And if I if if I recall correctly, that's before the the Supreme Court even ruled on the Atkins case. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, it, he was commuted in 2011. It's uh, Marion, Ohio. Is uh, 1987 okay. when the when the uh, when the crime was committed, and uh, he was commuted in 2011. Okay. What was his name? Joseph Murphy. Okay. Well, see, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, Wanda Jean didn't have the benefit of the Atkins case. Right. Because I believe that was decided in, in about 2002. Mm-hmm. Which was after she was executed. Right, yeah, she was executed in one, I believe. And if I recall correctly, she never really raised mental retardation. Yes, not in her original trial. As, or or in any of her post-conviction claims. Did she not until the very end? When she was going for that may have been what yeah that may have been what they tried to get clemency on from the or governor clemency. in Oklahoma, yeah. but I as, as I recall she never uh, brought to court any evidence that she suffered from an intellectual disability IQ you know at at or around classified as borderline or mentally retarded or any of that thing, uh, any of that evidence. And if you don't ask the courts to do something, you can't expect them to do it. You can't, they're not going to do it on their own. Right. You have to, and and if you're going to ask them to do something, you have to provide them the evidence that supports your claim. Mm-hmm. So if she never presented any of that to the to the Oklahoma courts or the federal courts, then you can't say, well, if Ohio did this, why didn't they do it with one? I mean, people are trying to compare um, uh, the the Nathaniel, what was his name, the one the guy who was just ex- executed in Alabama. Oh yeah. Uh, and I, I can't remember his. Was it Hawthorne or something like that? I could be wrong. I can't. I can't. It's. It's my. I'm drawing a blank right now. But right. There is a guy. The guy who was convicted of of the Birmingham church bombing. Mm-hmm. Who killed four little girls? He wasn't. He wasn't tried or convicted until, you know, the 1980s or 1990s. He is eligible for parole this year. Doesn't mean he's going to get it. 
Right. That he's eligible parole based on Alabama law. Mm-hmm. And based on the fact that for whatever reason, probably because so much time had passed between the crime in the 1960s and his being tried, um, Alabama, the state of Alabama chose not to seek death penalty. Right. Well, I would definitely. Uh, they may have sought, and, and I don't know much about his case. They may have sought the death penalty, but he was in his, you know, 60s by the time they tried him. Maybe the jury felt sorry for him. Right, right. Well, I would um, definitely recommend giving it a watch just because I found the case interesting, especially I think we would have a lot of meat going into the appeals that he had. Uh, mm-hmm. And it got. So much so that, you know, it came down to clemency or else, like, he was going to obviously be put to death. So, I mean, he had a lot of losses. He took a lot of L's in that process. Right. And, well, and clemency is also, I mean, was he was his sentence commuted to life? Yes, life without the possibility okay. of parole. Okay. And he's not saying he didn't commit the crime. He's just saying, you know, hey, I'm kind of special needs. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I'll I'll look into it. I'll watch that and um, then probably try and put him on the schedule sometime in the summer, maybe fall. Okay. Absolutely. Because so, we got a pretty big, we've got a pretty big, exciting schedule. Oh yeah. The I next, mean, what? Uh, several weeks yes we do uh i can't wait for some of these cases especially this one so we need i guess we kind of need to yes. stop talking so we can because there's a we, lot of meat on this phone yes there's there sure is all right uh first of all quick updates uh jody arias prosecutor juan martinez has been fired by the maricopa county prosecutor's office uh, he has been accused of uh, improper comments to court personnel and clerks. He's been accused of leaking a juror's name to a blogger during the retrial of Arias's penalty phase. Uh, he's been accused of a lot of things, a lot of improprieties. And he had been transferred to another division and now he's been fired. He's challenging that dismissal, and I'll keep an eye on it and see, you know, what happens. Of course, Jody Arias has raised a lot of this as a basis for her appeal, but about 80% of it has absolutely nothing to do with her trial, either guilt or innocence or her two penalty phase trials. So right. um, that. And that is still pending. It was argued in October. Arizona Court of Appeal has not yet rendered a an opinion on her appeal. And then Leon Jacob, his petition for discretionary review uh, to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has been refused on March 11th, 2020. So uh, absent a writ being taken by the U.S. Supreme Court, which at this time I don't think has been filed, um, his conviction and sentence are final. He's the 
Houston wannabe doctor that never finished a residency. Right. Who had yeah, tried to have yeah. his, yeah, had tried to have his ex-girlfriend and his new girlfriend's ex-husband murdered um, so that he could keep smoking meth and living off his new girlfriend who seemed like a very driven, very successful veterinarian in the Montrose right. community in Houston. Uh, what she was doing with this freaking loser, I don't know. Uh, and she, unfortunately, after their arrest, she bonded out of jail and she chose to commit suicide. So rather than face, you know, the music. Damn. So that is, um, yeah, he was he was trying uh, once again to argue that the identification, basically that the state failed to prove that the initials in the indictment were the people who testified at trial, and so he should get a whole do-over of his trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has said mm, no. Sorry about your damn luck. Yep. So he's he's he is in Texas Department of Corrections for life. Good. And I don't think he has the possibility of parole. I'll have to double Good. check on that though. Because for a while it's kind of ironic Texas. They're a big death penalty state, but for a long time, they weren't real big on pe- keeping people in prison. Really? Even if he killed people. Yeah. At one time in Texas, life meant 25 to 35 years. Oh, wow. So that's how Kenneth McDuff got out. Um, that's one of the reasons that I, you know, oppose a commutation of sentence for Rodney Reed because the law at the time he committed his crime and the time he was tried, he would be out in 16 years. Right. So, you know, he would serve 38 years and then be out because there was no there was no without parole. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right, Theodore Robert Bundy. Woo! Um, this one's gonna be he a fun was, one. Yeah, this one is uh, this one is one of the most evil, diabolical people I have ever heard of in my entire yeah. life, and I have read a slew of books about Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. I was 10 years old when he was in the news initially. Wow. Although we didn't know it was him. Right. So um, he was, you know, like the boogeyman. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Theodore Robert Bundy, he was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1947. His mother was unwed, so he was born at a home for unwed mothers in Vermont, in Burlington. Uh, Initially, he and his mother went to live with his grandparents in Philadelphia. 
he was told that his grandparents were his parents and his mother was his older sister. Mm-hmm. And I guess that his maternal aunts were his other sisters. Then in around 1951, Louise, his mother, and Ted moved to Washington State. She met Johnny Bundy at a Methodist church function. Uh, They fell in love. They got married. Uh, Johnny Bundy adopted Ted, gave him his last name. He tried to be close to Ted, but Ted always looked down on him because he didn't make enough money and he wasn't real educated and he, you know, was a laborer or a mid-level executive. I I don't remember what John Bundy did, but um, so, yeah, he wasn't good enough. And um, the Louise and Johnny had four children. I don't know their names. I don't want to know their names. Uh, I don't think anybody needs to know their names because they're not responsible for what their half-brother did. Right, exactly. They absolutely don't need to know anything about these young yeah. people. Um, there are kind of conflicting stories about Bundy's personality. He he was very manipulative. So sometimes he would claim that he was a shy kid and he was bullied and he didn't have any friends and he was lonely and then other times, and people who went to school with him would say, no, he was very charismatic, very popular, you know, no problem. So it's kind of hard to know what his teenage years were like, although there well, are I mean, suspicions that at 14. That From what I've always seen of him, he was as charismatic as they come. He knew how to correct. turn it on and off. But, you know, charisma could be something that he developed in later adolescence or even early adulthood. True. Um, you know, because I, 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 knew, I knew boys who were uh, really, you know, goofy and geeky in middle school, junior high school, and even high school. And then 10-year reunion, it's like, who is this guy? You right. Know, because they, they've shed him. And then and then sometimes they're like Sheldon Leonard and uh, Howard and Raj. They never <laughs> lose the geekiness. Right. But, so, but uh, yeah, he was so manipulative. And I think whatever his audience, whatever he thought would benefit him the most from his audience is the story that he would tell. So if it would Absolutely. get him sympathy, he would tell the story of the poor you know, adopted child. Um, apparently, around 1969, he discovered the ruse of his beginnings. He discovered that he was illegitimate and actually traveled to Burlington, Vermont, and got a copy of his original birth certificate. Uh, but he was like 22 years old by that time. Uh, mm-hmm. He did go to college in Washington State. Um, I think he started at the University of Puget Sound and then transferred to the University of Washington. Um, He initially studied Chinese and then took a semester or or a year or two off, and then he went back to 
uh, Washington, University of Washington and studied political science. Mm-hmm. He also had aspirations to go to law school, poor entrance scores. And so he then went into Republican politics. Right. And he actually was part of a campaign for uh, governor of, of Washington by the name of Evans. Um, and to help Governor Evans win that campaign, Ted Bundy posed as a college student and followed his opponent around, his Democratic opponent around, taping the guy's stump speeches. Wow. So that Evans' campaign could analyze them and use them to the best of their, you know, ability to interfere, I mean, to to win the election. Not interfere, but to win the election. Um, It was eventually discovered, this whole thing, and there was a little bit of a scandal, although it didn't prevent Evans from appointing uh, Ted Bundy to some kind of crime commission, which... Knowing now what we know is freaking scary. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, everybody knows that at one time, Ted also worked at a suicide hotline with author Ann Rule. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think what was the scariest part of Ted, I never thought he was that attractive, I mean, never thought he was that attractive. Right. But he was attractive. He was charismatic. And that was a scary thing because he was a monster. Literally a monster. Right. And he didn't look it. No, absolutely not. You know, um, up until that time. It would have been like, oh, hey. You know, it's just so look up. You know, look up the guys who committed the murders of the Clutters in Kansas. Look up Ed Gein. Uh, even um, what is his name? Uh, Kemper. And John they Wayne all looked Gacy. a little, you know, off. Crazy. No, John Wayne Gacy was later. John Wayne Whoa, Gacy was. Okay. I was, was in I the eighties. You were going by time period. I thought you were just. Yeah, going by I, I'm. I'm talking before 1974. That's what a lot of killers – I mean, Manson, the Manson family, look at how those people looked. They looked right. scary. You saw them walking up the street, you'd probably go across the road, you know? Right. So um, anyway, so he ended up entering law school finally with recommendations uh, that he gained from his political aspirations and his political connections, and he didn't do very well, and I think he ended up leaving law school mm-hmm. not long after he started. And while he suspected in many murders prior to this time, uh, we're going to go over those later in next week's episode. Uh, right now, I want to talk about the murders that he have been attributed to him either through his confessions prior to his execution 
spoiler alert, or um, through basically, you know, witnesses and, and other information that was gained during the investigations that fit his M.O., um, mm-hmm. which was generally to sneak into a woman's apartment, strike her in the head with a blunt object, sexually assault her with an object, although he did commit traditional sexual assaults uh, later, but most of the time it was with an object, which is probably a forensic countermeasure for him. Don't leave anything behind. You can't get caught. Um, His first victim was a young woman. The name I have is Karen Sparks. That may not be her name. That may not be her real name. It may be a pseudonym because she survived. She was attacked in her apartment, sleeping in her bed on January 4th, 1974 in the Seattle around the university area. Mm-hmm. Um, her roommates, I believe, wondered why she hadn't gotten up the following morning. They went down to her basement apartment and they discovered her bludgeoned in her bed. Uh, but she did survive. She had lasting physical impairments. And, um, but she did survive. And then the next victim was on February 1st. Uh, Karen Sparks was 18, by the way. The next victim, Linda Ann Healy, was 21. She was attacked and taken from her apartment on February 1st, 1974. Uh, Linda Ann Healy was a ski reporter for the local, one of the local Seattle stations. She was a university student. She lived on campus in an, you know, well, she lived like near the campus in an off-campus apartment. Um, she was bludgeoned while she was asleep and abducted. Disappeared. Nobody knew where she was. Mm-hmm. Then on March 12th, Donna Gale Manson, 19, was abducted while walking to a concert at the Evergreen State College, which I think was in Olympia, Washington. Um, Again, she disappeared. She was walking to the concert. She never got to the concert. Then April 17th, Susan Elaine Rancourt, 18, disappeared after attending an advisor's meeting at Central Washington State. Uh, Again, she was going to her car, Her car was found in the parking lot, and she was nowhere to be found. On May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks, 22, vanished from Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. Then um, the next victim was June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball. She disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien. June 11th. George Ann Hawkins, 18, was abducted from an alley behind her sorority house at the University of Washington. She was actually one of the first victims in which witnesses came forward and said, hey, I was approached by a guy carrying books or a briefcase who had a cast on his arm, and he needed me to help him get the 
books or briefcase into a VW Beetle. Right. And so for the first time, they had information that somebody was using a ruse to try to lure victims to a vehicle. And they had a type of vehicle and a make and model. Um, I think they might have had tan or beige. Mm-hmm. But that's all they had. And, I mean, back in that time, VW Beetles were like wallpaper, weren't they? Oh, my goodness. I, yeah, Punch – I mean, if you if you played Punch Bug on a car trip in those days, <laughs> you would have bruises on top of bruises. <laughs> right. Because they were all over Beetles all over the place. Um. You know, it was. It's funny because they always sounded like little, um, like little go karts. That pop, 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 pop. So we always drove American cars. We never, we never had a Volkswagen. Right. And then, in on July fourteenth, nineteen seventy four, uh, it was a beautiful day in Lake Sammamish, which is a, a park. In Washington, around this in the Seattle area, and people were at the park, and it was like a you know they had food vendors, they had people playing sports, having fun, and then in the early afternoon, Janice Ann Ott, who was 23, she worked for uh, juvenile probation. She was abducted in broad daylight. She was taking her bike back to her house, never got to her house, never seen again. Later that afternoon, around 4.30, Denise Marie Naslin left a group of friends to go to the ladies' room, and she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, later in 1975, Denise Nasland and Janice Ott and Georgian Hawkins' remains are parts of some of their remains, along with, I believe, another unidentified set of remains, were found at a site. Uh, it's a Sakwa. I guess it was part of the mountains, and it was near Lake Sammamish. The other thing, though, is several women once again came to police and said they they saw a guy named Ted. He told them his name was Ted with a cast on his leg on crutches who asked them for help with a sailboat. Mm -hmm. And what he would do was he would get these young women to help him. He would get them near the car. He would hit them in the head. He would put them in the car. And then he would kill them and violate them and then leave their bodies. And it turns out he would go visit the bodies until it was unbearable to do so. So he was a sick, one sick freaking puppy. Um, our evil puppy. And then, uh-huh. um, 
Brenda Ball and Linda Healy, Donna Manson, Susan Rancourt, and Roberta Parks' remains later in 1975 were found on Taylor Mountain at a second site. So, but it was, it was a good deal of time, but they finally had, they had Ted, they had the, they definitely had enough witnesses about the roost to know that this is the roost. Once again, they had the tan or beige Volkswagen Beetle. Um, They got a lot of tips and leads, including one from Bundy's then-girlfriend. However, it was never enough for them to uh, make an arrest or even say that that he was the one who killed everybody. Um, And also at that time, July 14th, this was before they found any of the bodies at Asakwa or Taylor Mountain. So they didn't have a lot to go on. Then uh, Ted did not do well in law school in Washington, but he got a second chance and transferred to a law school in Utah. And guess what happened? What happened? More people started dying. Young women in Utah and Colorado and Idaho, all places Ted traveled to, started dying. What? I know. You're shocked, aren't you? I am. (laughs) So um, we'll finish out 1974. Uh, Again, he's moved now to Utah. Taylor Mountain in Asakwa, nothing's been found. Um, he may hear about what's going on, and that may be one of the reasons he elected to go to Utah is because it was getting a little bit too hot in Seattle for a guy named Ted who drove a Beetle. Again, I think he was he wasn't that smart, I don't think. Um, he was a a bullshit talker, and so he could talk and sound very intelligent and erudite, but he wasn't really that smart. Mm-hmm. He'd give a good appearance of being intelligent, but not really, because he was he was too driven by his need. He stole everything he owned of any value. He stole. He stole credit cards and lived on other people's money. And he felt entitled to do that, perhaps because he was an illegitimate child. You know, his stepdaddy didn't love me, didn't know who his real daddy was. You know, his grandfather pretended to be his father, and he was not apparently, if you believe the Cowles family, he wasn't really a great guy, and the grandmother had mental issues and, you know, all these things. It's like, get get over it. Right. Go see a psychologist. Go talk about those things and have the psychologist give you ways of dealing with those things and get right. over it. Don't, don't go inflict 
death and destruction on innocent young girls whose major flaw is that they are bitches that tell you to F off when you ask them for help. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, <laughs> I had I had an encounter as a kid with a weirdo. And luckily, my grandmothers were so worried about stranger danger that they had at least me on high alert all the time. And so this car pulls over, guy's asking me for for directions somewhere. And I'm telling him where to go without leaving the sidewalk. And he's like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. So I get a little bit closer, but not close enough to the car for him to get me. Right. And then I notice he's not wearing pants. Because this was the Ooh. 1970s, and there were some freaking weirdos out there. And I saw him, he wasn't wearing pants, and I was like, weirdo, I said it out loud, and then I started walking home. Right. And I was walking in the opposite direction. For him to catch up to me, he would have to go down about a half a mile, make a U-turn, come back a half a mile, and by that time, I'd gone down a side street where he would have no idea where I went. And then, even if he had seen me, he would have to go down and make another U-turn, and then he'd still be going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't wearing any pants. So that would have been a really stupid idea. (laughs) NOPD sees that, and you're going to have a lot of explaining to do. Right. So... Um, but that was, you know, that was how, and I never, I never told my mom. I never told my dad. I just, I, like I handled it and I was done and I moved on. Now I wasn't smart. I, I wasn't smart enough or prescient enough at the time to get his license plate. Because then we could have called the police and given a description of the car and the license plate and let New Orleans Police Department deal with him. Right, absolutely. But that didn't really occur to me, and I just did the the safer thing was to just continue walking in the opposite direction and right. be on my way. So, but, but uh, I, yeah, I, and I, I just think he was a weirdo. By the way, was he wearing pants, Lisa? No, he wasn't, which, you know, <laughs> is another reason that I thought I had a pretty good chance of getting away because it's like he can't, he can't get out of the car, and right. if he had gotten out of the car, you know, my mother's mother, pretty much, she was a tough old broad, mm-hmm. and she made sure that her granddaughters were not little wilting flower showers. So... He would have had a lot on his hands if he had gotten out the car. And his dangly bits would have been very vulnerable. Right. <laughs> so, um, that yeah, that would have been, um, and that would have attracted, it was like a, I think it was like a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. 
of course, now you can't let a kid walk six or seven blocks down a big yeah, street. But back then, you could. Mm-hmm. So, um, but again, you know, that was, that was, and I would have been, I, even as a teenager, I if he asked me for help, I would have been like, sorry, no. And kept going. And if he'd right. come after me, he would have had a fight. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you want to take a quick break, and then we'll um, we'll we'll talk about uh, Ted's escapades in Utah and Colorado. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Claire and Convention. We'll have more after this. If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do Save every day till eternity passes away Just to spend them with you If I could make days last forever If words could make wishes come true I'd save every day like a treasure And then again I would spend them with you there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Coming to the Ola Gym, Saturday, June 29th, it's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace Morta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Insane Shane, and current AWO champion, D-Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas. A wrestling organization. Please. 
myself a good talk. All right, and we're back. Yes, ma'am, we are. And that song was the late, great Jim Croce. Was it? Okay. Yes. I know I you probably I, I never heard it before. Heard <laughs> you really ought to get you a 70s music CD. <laughs> okay. And listen to it. <laughs> so, yeah. I got you. I got you. Uh, uh, I was, I've always loved that song. Absolutely. It sounds like a good one for sure. Yeah, that's a really beautiful one. And it was apparently written when he found out his wife was pregnant with their only child because he passed away in a plane crash in 1973. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was was released posthumously. Okay. And was number one in 1974. Oh, wow. So... All right, so Utah, Colorado, and Idaho. Um, Ted's first victim was on October 2nd. Nancy Wilcox was ambushed, assaulted, and strangled in Holiday, Utah. Bundy buried her body near Capitol Reef National Park, which was south of Salt Lake City. Uh, He revealed that in his pre-execution confessions, but her body was never found. Mm-hmm. And then on October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith vanished from Midvale, Utah, and her body was found nine days later in a nearby mountainous area. Um, I believe her father was a police uh, police detective. Or a chief of police in Midvale. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong. Um, and or he was a fire, you know, an official in the fire department. And then Laura Ann Aim, uh, seventeen, disappeared from Lehigh, Utah. Uh, she was bludgeoned and raped, and her body was discovered around Thanksgiving in American Fork Canyon. But by that time, there was no forensic evidence. 1974 that could to lead to identifying who had killed her and mm-hmm. I think at that time the Washington and Utah murders weren't connected nobody knew that this was the same guy mm-hmm. because in those days just crossing from one county into another county could prevent murders from being linked because there were no internet or computer computers or there were computers, but they were gigantic rooms, you know, and they could, they could only do certain things like payroll. Right. Um, now the Seattle, Washington, King County, they did implement a computer system to help them, kind of prioritize the leads but that took a while and then on October 30 uh, okay October 31st Laura Aim 
November 8th, Carol Durant was in a mall in Murray, Utah. A man approached her, identified himself as Officer Roseland, and told her that someone had broken into her car in the parking lot. He asked her to accompany him to her car, which she did. Then she told him nobody had gotten in, nothing was missing, and then he asked her to come back into the mall to talk to the uh, – they caught the guy. She needed them to her, her to talk to other officers and fill out a report, so she agreed to do it. They go in the mall. He says, oh, they must have taken him to the station. Let's go to the station. So he walks her back outside, and they go to the parking lot to his Volkswagen Beetle. And Carol says, in her little her her, her little mind says, what cop drives a Volkswagen Beetle on duty? Zero, none. So she asks for identification. She's she's leery. She asks for identification. He flashes a badge, and so she thinks, okay. And she gets into the Beetle. They drive for a short distance, and then he pulls over and kind of jumps the curb. Because another thing we have to learn about Ted Bundy that you have to know, he sucked as a driver. Mm-hmm. Okay? He was a bad, bad driver. This right. will come into play. Don't worry. So, okay. I remember. Uh, he jumps the curb. He tries to put a handcuff on one wrist. And then he ends up somehow getting, I guess because Carol was struggling with him. Uh, she was 18, Carol Durant. She struggled with him, so he ended up cuffing both handcuffs on the same arm. Oh, Lord. She gets the door open. She gets out. She's fighting. She's screaming. She's scratching. Um, some accounts have her kicking him in the balls. And... Mm. All I have to say to that is, you go, girl. Right. Um, but she manages to draw enough attention that he decides that, you know, he who fights and runs away lives to kill another day. So he jumps back in his beetle and speeds off. She right. gets a vehicle stop. She gets in, tells a couple what had happened. They take her to the police station. She makes a report. Um, I guess they go, you know, officers in, in Murray drive around looking for this beetle and don't find it. So that's kind of like, but he has, one has gotten away. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness he didn't act like a real cop and get her name and address and driver's license and all that information from her. Because apparently that wasn't important for the Ruth. Right. So he had no yeah. idea who this girl was. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, again, that didn't matter to him. He didn't need to know True. who they were. Uh, that night in Bountiful, Utah, Deborah Jean Kent, who was 17, vanished after leaving a school play to go pick up her younger brother from a bowling alley. Right. Um, the uh, her father was also either a police chief in Bountiful or in the fire department. Two of these girls, I think Melissa and Deborah, you know, their fathers were 
either law enforcement or fire department, and I just can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. And I I did not print up the notes that had that distinction. So um, her body was eventually found. Our skeletal remains were eventually found, and in 2015, they were positive, positively identified by DNA as Deborah Kent. Damn. Uh, unfortunately, they it, it was in the 1980s they found a patella because he right. left the bodies out in the open. So if they right. weren't discovered within five, you know, four or five months. <clears throat> then, you know, they weren't going to find much. And Taylor Mountain and Asako was the same way. You know, they found some bones and skulls, but they didn't they didn't find an intact, complete body. Right. So um, <clears throat> then uh, things were quiet probably because Ted was visiting family for the holidays. Uh, He went back to Washington State. There may be victims, additional victims from Washington State that have just never been linked to him. Um, But he was quiet until January 12th, 1975. He took a trip to Snowmass, Colorado, and he abducted Karen Eileen Campbell, who was 23 and a nurse, uh, he abducted her from a hotel hallway in Snowmass, Colorado. She Damn. was in a lounge. She went back to her room to get a sweater or a, a wrap, and she never came back, and she wasn't in the room, never made it to the room. Um, but again, he had the roof. He needed help. She was probably nice enough to say, okay, and go out to the parking lot. Or maybe he used the ruse of somebody broke into your car. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Karen Campbell's body was found 36 days later on a dirt road near the hotel. This was January and February and early March in Colorado, so it was very, very, very cold, and this actually meant that there was some forensic evidence right. that could be used to identify the person who killed her once a person was identified and caught. <clears throat> On March 15th, uh, Ted killed Julie Cunningham, 26. She disappeared on her way to a tavern in Vail, Colorado. Um, and her body, according to Ted, was buried near Rifle, which was 90 miles west of Vail, but her body was never found. Then <clears throat> Denise Lynn Oliverson was abducted while bicycling in Grand Junction, Colorado. Uh, Ted said in 1989 that he threw her body into the Colorado River, and therefore it has never been found. Lynette Dawn Culver was abducted May 6th. She was 12. She was at Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, Her body, according to Bundy, was thrown into a river and the authorities believe that that was the Snake River because that was in 
proximity to the high to the junior high. And mm-hmm. then June twenty eighth, Susan Curtis disappeared during a youth conference at Brigham Young University in Utah. Um, again, Bundy claimed to have buried her body near Price, which was southeast of Provo, but her body was never found. And then after he killed Susan Curtis, he was quiet or um, or there are just victims out there we don't know. Um, I've tried to get, you know, to identify as many of the victims as I could. There may be some victims who survived who aren't generally identified in a lot of the, a lot of the literature and a lot of the, uh, pages out there. So, but on August 16th, 1975, about three o'clock in the morning, Ted decides to go driving in Granger, Utah. I say, this is just my opinion, he was out looking for a victim. Right, absolutely. Um, he had a... He had what police believed to be a burglary kit in his car. So he was either out looking for somebody to kill or looking for some place to steal from. Right. Um, he was driving through a neighborhood in Granger. The officer knew everybody in that neighborhood and knew that that Volkswagen didn't belong. He was a bad driver, so he was driving erratically. And when the officer tried to uh, just turn on the light, like the spotlight to get the license plate number, Bundy turned the lights off on his car and started driving at a high rate of speed to get away. But a Volkswagen Beetle versus what most cop cars in that time were like Plymouth, Fords, Chevys, a Volkswagen Beetle is not going to outrun. And usually those Plymouth, Fords, and Chevys were pretty souped up. Right. So... Your Volkswagen Beetle, Ted, is not going to outrun the Utah police force, Granger, Utah police patrol vehicle. Yeah, that's going to be it. Ted apparently realized this, and so he eventually pulled over. Um, He was arrested because of the possession of the burglary tools. Mm -hmm. Uh, He claimed that he had... He claimed he fled because that, that because he was smoking a joint when he was seen pulled off on the side of the road. And um, but the officers who you know took him into custody said that they didn't find a joint in the car, they didn't find marijuana in the car, and he didn't smell like pie. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that story didn't fly. Um. The charge was not that serious, so he was released ROR. But the circumstances and Carol DeRanche's attempted kidnapping led police to take a closer look at him. Right. Uh, Bundy was placed at that point under 24-hour surveillance. 
And um, he got nervous and sold his VW Beetle. You would expect a law student to have more sense than that. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. And so when he sold it, the police impounded it and searched it. And they found hairs consistent with Carol, Karen Campbell. They found evidence consistent with Carol Durant. The interior of the vehicle matched Carol Durant's description of it to a T. Uh, and so then she, he was brought in for a lineup, and she identified him immediately. And so he was charged with aggravated kid, uh, attempted kidnapping and either attempted or aggravated assault because apparently at some point during the struggle, he had a crowbar in his hand. He was going to hit her in the head. And uh, he was released on bail uh, after that charges were upped. Uh, the bail right. was paid by family and friends in Seattle and Tacoma uh, who – did not could not believe that this was their Ted. Right. He had a lot of people fooled. Um, okay, so he was indicted for aggravated kidnapping because of the use of a weapon, the crowbar, and attempted criminal assault. Hmm. Okay. Um, he was going to trial in Utah. His defense was basically um, a mistaken identity. I just look like the guy. Because of the public sentiment around, surrounding the case and the fact that now Washington and Utah and Oregon and other agencies in the Northwest and the, the West were looking at Ted as Ted from Lake Sammamish, mm-hmm. uh, Ted elected to waive a jury in his kidnapping trial. Right. And that was probably, I mean, it was probably a good idea in one sense, but not necessarily. In a criminal case, it's really harder to prove reasonable doubt or to show reasonable doubt to a judge than it is 12 jurors. Right. The judge knows what he's looking for. You may be able to fool a who doesn't? Correct, but I, I again, I I think that the public sentiment and all the all the publicity about Washington State uh, and Utah coordinating and you know they were really coordinating and trying to close a lot of cases, and they had the Colorado because they had evidence at least from Karen Campbell found in the VW. Mm-hmm. Um. And another thing that they found, uh, I believe it was Debbie Kent that night, um, November 8th, a handcuff key was found in the parking lot. And it turns out the handcuff key found in the parking lot fit the handcuffs that Ted put on Carol DeRoch's wrists. Oh. So the prosecution had a more or less circumstantial case, although Carol Durant's identification of Ted and her 
description and testimony of what happened was rock solid. Again, the defense tried to say it was mistaken identity, that everything was a coincidence. Uh, they couldn't prove the handcuffs belonged to Ted. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't. She could have been mistaken about the color of the the beetle because um, it wasn't in broad daylight. It was at night. Right. And uh, the judge deliberated, I believe, over a weekend. I think mm-hmm. they they both sides rested on Friday. He deliberated over the weekend, and on Monday, he found Ted guilty of aggravated kidnapping. I don't believe – I think he didn't find him guilty on the sec, on an attempted criminal assault, but he mm-hmm. did find him guilty on an aggravated kidnapping. And he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah Department of Corrections. Right. Now – most people would be like, okay, I got one year, one to 15, but I mean, I could get out in as early as one. Depending on Utah, he, he might be out in eight months if he's good. But Ted can be good. Yeah, absolutely. He's got to try and get one over on everybody yet again. So he was found in the yard hiding in a bush. Oh wow. With a a kid that had airline schedules and maps and some money that he shouldn't have had and change of clothing. So he's not even the even in the Utah Department of Corrections. And he's already and he's already trying to plan an escape. That one was spoiled. Then Bad news for Ted. He was charged by Colorado with Karen Campbell's murder, and he was facing the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, he fought extradition, but then decided to waive extradition. And I have no doubt whatsoever that the only reason he decided to waive extradition was if he's waiting awaiting trial... He's not going to be in prison. He's going to be in a county jail. Right. And they're not quite as secure as a prison. Well, he didn't escape from the county jail, did he? I'm getting to that, Michael. Spoiler. Sorry. (laughs) So he waives extradition. He's transferred to Colorado. He begins representing himself. He goes to first to the Garfield County Jail and then he's transferred to the Pitkin County Jail. Um, They begin their initial pretrial motions and at this point again, Ted's pretty much winning the pretrial motions on this case. He's getting evidence thrown out. He's getting evidence suppressed. So, really, you know, what's the deal? But he thinks that's not good enough. He doesn't want to be in a jail. He wants to be on the streets. Mm-hmm. So he's acting as an, has his own attorney, and the judge has granted him the dignity of not keeping him 
in shackles, leg shackles, and a belly chain with wrist shackles. And so he goes to the library. He's doing supposedly doing research. He's hidden in the stacks. He opens a window. He jumps down from the second floor, <clears throat> injures his leg, Mm-hmm. Takes off, goes in the woods, finds a cabin, hides there. He wanders aimlessly in the forest, not knowing where he is because he's not really planted. He's planted, but he hasn't planted because he's not right. that bright. And so he wanders the forest. He steals a parka and some food from a cabin, stays there. Then he steals a car. And once again, his poor driving skills. And perhaps lack of a sense of direction, he's put himself back in Aspen, where he escaped from, where they're looking for him, where they have a freaking manhunt going, right. and bad driver Ted back to Aspen, so of course he gets caught. Um, so he goes back into the jail. Uh, I'm sure the judge then said, "MF, you're wearing belly chains and." like shackles and if somebody had invented a stun belt at this time you'd be wearing that too. <laughs> but so um uh again his escape and you know he blames the media but it's like dude you escaped from jail. You escaped from the courthouse while acting as your own attorney. Mm-hmm. And you were gone for a couple of days. What the heck do you think the media is going to do with that story? I mean, do you think they're going to ignore it? No. Really? No, no, no. I mean, and, and you know, I hate to tell you this, Ted, dear, but you are a suspect in multiple murders in Washington, in Oregon, in Utah, in Idaho, and Colorado. So, so yeah, story. dude, you're going to be big news. Yeah, I mean, all these people that blame the media, yes, the media can get out of hand sometimes, but when you do something so heinous, what do you expect them to do? I agree. Ignore it? Pretend it didn't happen? So he filed for a change of, Aspen, a change of venue from Aspen. Uh, he wanted to go to a, a different location, and I can't remember the name of the town. He, oh, he, no, excuse me. He wanted to transfer the case to Denver. The judge, perhaps a bit perturbed that his kindness was so rudely treated by Ted, transferred the case to Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. And Colorado Springs is not a venue that's really sympathetic to accused murderers. Okay. And Ted was, uh, if I recall correctly, he was facing the death penalty. Correct. So, on December 30th, 1978, Ted escapes a second time from the jail in Pitkin County. And that will be our topic for next week. Woo! I mean, good lord. You yeah. know, and, and 
sitting here listening to this, and uh, Lisa, have you seen the movie or TV show or whatever it is yet? Which one? The Netflix. I think it was a Netflix one uh, with uh, Zac Efron playing Bundy. No, I I did not see that one. Um, you need to go I watch. I watched. I okay. First of all, I don't want to support Joe Berlinger in anything that he does, just as I do not want to support. Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin, mm-hmm. and Amy, whatever her name is. I don't want to support them. <clears throat> so even though I don't wouldn't have to necessarily pay for it on Netflix, mm-hmm. I still ain't going to watch it. I'm trying to think. I, I don't even know who you're talking Obviously, I know the three of those, them, but the West Memphis Three, but... Who are you talking it, about? If I recall, Joe Berlinger is one of the Paradise Lost. Is he really? People. Yes. He's the one who made that? Yes, he and Bruce Sanofsky. Damn. You know, I, I gotta say, he did pretty good with uh, that non documentary movie. I mean, it's a good movie, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying, I, you know. I, list, I did watch part of the tape. Mhm. And it was okay. But I I, I already know what Ted Bundy was and who he was. Mm-hmm. And I saw that stuff and had nightmares as a kid. Mm-hmm. Cuz even if I was a tough even if I was a tough little broad on the outside my grandmother's stranger danger fears right uh affected me mhm absolutely so i kind of i just got i just had an icky feeling watching that buddy thing i don't want to mm-hmm. hear him right i don't want to hear him you know minimize what he did and act like you know, he's got some great wisdom. I mean, he was just, he was manipulating the person he was talking to. And I know that, I know about that because I read the Hagemeyer and Keppel books. So, you know, I don't know. I may, you know, one of these days on a Friday night, I may watch it. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just don't know and if I, I if I recall correctly Joe Burlinger produced the Zach Efron Bundy movie and Joe Burlinger produced the the conversations with a killer tape Netflix I really didn't know that. Um and like I said I I just I don't want to support Joe Burlinger. Absolutely. Yeah, point. So and once again, you know, I, Ted, there was one movie, I think it was in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, and I, I think I saw it on on cable, like it was on Epics mm-hmm. one night. And, you know, it was a whole manipulative, 
evil killer crap. But then at the end, when he's about to be executed, shaving his head, and um, he was literally unable to control his bodily functions. Right. And there was a little bit of satisfaction from that, if that's what really happened to him. Yeah, I've heard. And you know me. I don't feel... I don't feel that way about any execution. I don't feel that way about any defendant being executed. I don't wish, you know, I hope that they're able to go calmly and peacefully. But they, you know, their victims deserve justice. But with Ted Bundy, I hope he suffered. And he's the only one I'll say that about. Right. Absolutely. You know. And because I mean all these all these young women were twenty one, twenty three, twenty two, nineteen, eighteen, seventeen, sixteen. They believe his his first murder was when he was fourteen. He was 14. His victim was eight. <clears throat> but he didn't drive across the country like Edward Wayne Edwards supposedly did. Yeah. Once again, she lived like, right down the street from him. Yeah. Just um, like uh, Brad always said, Edward Wayne Edwards was the Michael Jordan of serial killers, if all that would ever turn out to be true. Oh, uh, well, it's. You know, it's it's all it's all confirmation bias. He wants to see what he wants to see. Right, exactly. And even the Zodiac, there's a there was a show recently. I think it was on Oxygen or maybe ID. Um, another man who says his father was the Zodiac. Oh dear Lord. Or his grandfather was the Zodiac. Hmm. So. All right. Well, to the listeners, we're, we're going to put a bow on this one a little bit early. Um, I know Ted Bundy can be exhausting. Yeah. He's something um, else. Yeah. I want everybody out there listening whether you're listening live or you're listening on the archive, um, just take care of yourselves. Take care of your family, your loved ones. Uh, try to be kind. Try to have grace. Listen to public health officials. Uh, don't listen to social media. Don't listen to crazy people saying crazy things. Um, like, don't don't drink bleach. Yes, bleach will kill the coronavirus on surfaces, on doorknobs, but don't drink it because it'll kill the coronavirus and you. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, just take care of yourselves and look out for, you know, if you have elderly people living nearby, check in on them. Uh, 
another thing that I've seen on social media, uh, a lot of different old retirement community, assisted living facilities, nursing homes, skilled care homes, those people are at risk, and those people are, are really on lockdown. They can't even have visitors anymore. Send them a card. Find a, you know, find a nursing home in your area, a skilled care facility, a living, assisted living facility. Send cards. If you have kids that are home from school, have them make some cards. And send five or six cards to your area, to people, you know, to the, the skilled nursing facilities. If you know of a person who lives in a facility, start sending them some cards. Um, I saw a picture on social media last night. A gentleman's father's facility is on lockdown, so he can't go visit. He comes every day. He sits outside the on like a porch outside his father's room and talks to his father on the phone. So Hmm. even though you can't visit, you can find a way to bridge the gap. His dad can see him and his dad can talk to him. He can see his dad. He can talk to his dad. It's not impossible. But, yeah, I mean, you know, send stuff to those assisted living facilities. You know, their families aren't able to come see him now. Maybe some family members are able to do that. Maybe other family members are also on lockdown themselves because they have, you know, compromised immune systems or whatever. So, you know, find a place in your area and send something to brighten everybody's day. Um, And you could just, you know, female resident, male resident. To the nurses, to the doctors, um, and send cards to your local hospitals because healthcare workers can't go on lockdown. First responders can't go on lockdown. So you know, some of us have the option, and some of us don't. Right. So, all right. <clears throat> well, that's my public service announcement. <laughs> hmm. We ready to call it a night? Let's wrap her up. All righty. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at Clear and Convincing Podcast. .wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us on Tuesday, March 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 4, State of Florida versus Theodore, Theodore Robert Bundy. We'll talk about Bundy's successful escape from custody while awaiting trial on murder charges in Colorado and his travels to Tallahassee, Florida. We'll talk about the carnage Bundy unleashed at the Chile Mega House on January 15, 1978, which killed Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy and severely injured Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. 
his attack on Cheryl Thomas in her apartment eight blocks from the Child Omega sorority house, and the murder in February 1978 of 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach in Lake City, Florida. Finally, we'll talk about Bundy's arrest in Pensacola, Florida, his two trials, conviction, appeals, and eventual execution on January 24, 1989. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>